religious influences in America. And uh, so we kind of started in England with a little bit of the English Reformation and moved quickly into the colonial era. <clears throat> and one of the main events of the early colonial era was, the, or I guess maybe the late colonial era, was the first, what we call the First Great Awakening. Um, a, a wave of revivals that began in New England and spread down the eastern seaboard, or what realistically is the, were, were the colonies. And virtually no colony was unaffected <clears throat> by that. And uh, so that lasted religiously right up until about uh, the American Revolution. And I kind of talked about, last week we, we talked briefly about it, there are a number of books written about it um, that you could you could consult, and I just talked about some of the the impact of it, and because of that, I wanted to turn our attention specifically today to the to some of the, to some of the music of that era. We are aware of musical controversies, and in our most recent history. Music controversy has broadly, I'm going to write, I'm just going to throw a couple of words out that in and of, in and of themselves do not cover everything, but contemporary versus conservative. And when this, when this kind of wave of controversy first broke out, which would be probably in the 1980s, um, <clears throat> you know, it kind of, <clears throat> kind of took the, the Christian world by storm and and Saddleback Church, uh, at the time, a Southern Baptist church in, in California, kind of led the way. And, you know, Rick Warren wrote his purpose-driven church. And, you know, he, he kind of embraced the, the slogan that they were the flock that rocked. And we have seen a, a whole explosion of music in the name of Christianity, <clears throat> Uh, Christian rap, <clears throat> Christian rock, Christian heavy metal, um, and all the things that 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 kind of <clears throat> kind of go with it. So <clears throat> um, that you know is, is kind of all over the map. And and then as it began to work in churches, you know, churches that had always sung kind of the music that we sing and the way that we sing it, some of them began to experiment with it, and it was not uncommon for churches to have. You know, one service to be a contemporary service and another service to be traditional. You don't see a lot of that now, 40 years in. Churches have pretty much committed themselves one direction or another. And, and I just, right, that musical controversy is really not my topic this morning. But I hope that we don't think that was the only musical controversy that has ever existed uh, musical controversies are probably as old as, certainly as old as the church is. I think that, that music has always been something that has been discussed. So, <clears throat> so what I want to do is this morning is just back up a little bit uh, historically to, to the kind of music, musical influences that were prior to America's first great awakening. Um, <clears throat> The Protestant Reformation, which we set as the official beginning date, October 31st, 1517, was in its own right a tremendous revival of religion. It was the recovery of core doctrines. It had widespread influence. It was, as revivals always are, very controversial and very divisive. 
Um, and we tend to think of it as primarily Protestant and Catholic, and it was. But among the reformers, there were a host of reformers who adopted all kinds of positions, right? The, the study of the Reformation historically was not our purpose. <clears throat> but up until the Reformation, from really about A.D. 300 until about A.D. 1500, so for about 1,200 years, the only dominant force on music and anything in the church was the Roman Catholic version. And whatever, whatever Rome permitted was what was, and whatever Rome banned was kind of what was, and, and everybody was oriented either into submission or conflict to Rome. And then, of course, the Reformation breaks out. Luther, who had been a Roman Catholic, and who quite honestly was interested in remaining a Roman Catholic, was a very strong advocate of the kind of music that was used by the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church was, I'm going to use these words knowing full well that you will hear them in 21st century ears and I will speak them with 21st century voice. Being relatively tolerant in some areas of music. Uh, Probably Luther's single greatest contribution to music is the song that he wrote, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which is in our songbook. And we will, in a few minutes, turn to our songbooks this morning. Um, And we just kind of tend to note almost in passing at times, without thinking about how revolutionary it would have been, that although Luther wrote the words, the tune that he used, he took from popular culture. That it was, it was a melody that was familiar to most Germans that was not associated religiously. And um, so, and, and you know, we just go, well, that was kind of the way that it was. And yeah, that was kind of the way that it was. But by any, beyond any stri- stretch of doubt, um, the reformer who had the greatest impact on music was John Calvin. Um, and this is important because when we're talking about early colonial history, virtually everybody that we encounter is going to be reformed in their theology, and they are going to rely very heavily upon the writings and the influence of John Calvin. Calvin was, of course, a Frenchman whose primary focus of ministry ended up being Geneva, Switzerland, and towards the end of his life, he, he functioned as almost the single-handed authority over all matters cultural and religious in Geneva. He wrote a massive set of uh, commentaries on Christianity called the Institutes of the Christian Religion that set forth all of the ideas of, of uh, <clears throat> Reformed theology. And of course, we know that the, that the dirty word Calvinism is, is attributed to him, which is probably some ways unjust to him. But to think of John Calvin only in, in that little window of theological debate is kind of an injustice to the whole idea. John Calvin wrote an entire body of theology that, that covered everything to do with Christianity. 
And so John Calvin made three claims about music that would become dominant among Puritan Reformed people. This would, this would drive the way that they did music. And, and you know, we, we're not sure, you know, the, uh, I read somebody who said that, you know, he was influenced himself by other Puritan writers, by other, I mean, other Reformed writers, and also by Greek philosophers, which is probably true because these men were very well read in the ancient literature of their days. <clears throat> but anyway, right? So, so here are the three things that Calvin dictated that would govern Reformed music. And by the way, you can still find Reformed churches today that are going to be following these guidelines. Number one, musical instruments are not allowed. Musical instruments are not allowed. Music consists of words and singing. That's music. Words and singing. And the biblical logic that he employed is this. If you if you want to turn to it, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse number 13. In other words, folks, right? Because here's, here's kind of the question, right? If you're thinking about that. How do I go through my Old Testament? And, and we are not very far away, by the way, on Sunday nights from moving into that portion of First Chronicles in which David is used of God to kind of take charge of the music of the temple. And so as we work our way through the New Testament, we have tambourines that are in our King James Bible called timbrels. We have all kinds of stringed instruments, whatever those stringed instruments might have been. We have cymbals. So we have percussion and we have strings. We have all kinds of musical instruments. How do you come through all of that Old Testament? And John Calvin was not unmindful of the Old Testament. And go, but in the church, you can't use any of those things. No stringed instruments. No cymbals. And his logic is 1 Corinthians 14, 13. Wherefore, let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. And you say, well, what does that have to do with it? Well, when you hear a piano, right, when you hear a piano, or more specifically, because for them if the instrument was not the piano, it was the organ. Roman Catholic churches used organs, pipe organs. You don't know what the organ is actually saying. Because organs don't make words. They make sounds. So they're not allowed. I wonder how it would go over if I said that to us. I'm not going to try that. I don't believe that. So there would be no point in trying to go that way. But... I do feel like an obligation at this point in time, folks, to point something out, that John Calvin was a man. 
And he was a very good man and a very dedicated man. And even though we are not reformed in our theology, we are deeply indebted to men like John Calvin. But I would remind you again that no Christian ever lives out his doctrine in a vacuum or in a laboratory. We live out our Bible doctrine in a very real world that is being shaped by many influences. Some of them are historical and traditional. Some of them are immediate and contemporary. Some of them frighten us. Some of them thrill us. But all of them contribute to the way we interpret things. And John Calvin was a man who was in a life and death war with the Roman Catholic Church. It is virtually impossible to imagine that any of the reformers were going to find much sympathy with the way the Roman Catholics did things. So again, without, before I return to the other two things that Calvin taught, let me just point out a couple of things of historical significance. Edward VI, who was the only male heir of Henry VIII, the young king who only reigned from 10 to 16, died before he reached majority and reigned in his own right, had already been making plans under the instruction of his Protestant instructors and counselors to remove organs from every church in the land of England. That no Anglican church would have musical instruments. They are reformed in their theology. They are not Roman Catholic. Organs are Roman Catholic and we will not have them in the Church of England. To move ahead a hundred years or so, Oliver Cromwell. And Oliver Cromwell is the man who for 11 years ran the, king, the nation of England when England did not have a king. Oliver Cromwell was like the Dwight Eisenhower or the Douglas MacArthur of the English Civil War and became the head of the British government and actually refused the title of king. A parliament said, we will make you king. I do not want to be king. And endeavor to impose, right? Again, when we, when we talk about Christian nationalism and we want to argue for Christian nationalism, all right, let's go back and learn about Oliver Cromwell and the interregnum, interregnum, the 11 years when the Cromwells ruled and imposed a religious civilization, a Protestant reformed civilization so here you are fighting a civil war, and as part of the civil war, every time you come across a church, you destroy the organ. Because we're trying to make a point, and the point is that we're not Catholic, and we're not going to be, and we don't like you. So it comes as no surprise, folks, that when John Calvin is controlling Geneva, Switzerland, that all of the organs are destroyed in all the churches, and the the metal from the pipes is melted down and turned into other purposes. So again, when Calvin says reformed churches do not use instruments, right? there are people who took we don't use instruments to heart, we will destroy all. I mean, you know, this is, this is exaggerated and stupid, but I could, I could stand in the pulpit and, and question pianos and then leave the pianos. 
or I could stand in the pulpit and question pianos and then light them on fire to demonstrate that I'm very serious in my questioning of pianos. And that's the kind of stuff that happened. So there's the first of the reformed positions on music is that no instruments may be used. The second pillar of reformed musical theology is this. The church may not sing hymns of human composition. The church may not sing hymns of human composition. In other words, folks, the only songs that you can sing are songs that you find in your Bible. So the only songs that we will sing are psalms, possibly the song of Moses at the end of Deuteronomy, possibly the song of Miriam in the book of Exodus. But all of our songs will come out of the Old Testament and they will all be psalms. Now, The reformers argued, and they did, this was not new to them, Augustine, who had lived in A.D. 400, had made the same argument that the Psalms all previewed Christ and therefore were enough. Right? Because part of the controversy, and I'm not trying to get deeply into the controversy, but part of the controversy is that if we can only sing songs from the Old Testament, then we don't have any New Testament songs to sing. And how can we be a New Testament church without having New Testament songs? And the argument is, well, but there, there are no New Testament songs. All the songs are Old Testament songs. So they must preview Christ. A Psalter, which was, right, if all you have are, song, are psalms, then you're not going to call it a songbook and you're not going to call it a hymnal. You're going to call it a Psalter. A 1561 Psalter introduces Psalm 2 then this way. Here we see how David and his kingdom form a true image and sure prophecy of Jesus Christ and his reign. So if we are, can I use this word, this expression? If we're going to be hardcore reformed in our theology, then we will not use instruments and we will only sing inspired music. And number three, we will only sing the melody. We will not, nobody will sing harmony. There is no need for harmony. Harmony is musical in its nature, not spiritual in its nature. Now Calvin argued, and I think he's right here, all right? So, I, you know, I think, he's, I think he's wrong in the way he applied it but I think he is right here. And I would bring these three arguments to any conversation that we want to have about music in the 21st century. The primary purpose of congregational singing is, number one, to glorify God. Number two, to edify the church. And number three, to provide a basis for meditation upon Christ and Christian virtues. That the music give us something good to think about that it directs our mind and our attention to the Lord. So those are the, and and again, folks, you can find Reformed churches to this day 
who will follow those principles. And this is not uncommon. By the way, it is not confined to the reformers. And, you know, in, in 2019, my wife and I were in London on a Sunday. There was no question where we were going to church. We went to Spurgeon's Tabernacle. Spurgeon was a Baptist. He died in 1892. His sermons are still in print today. They went around the world. He is probably the greatest Baptist that has ever existed by denomination. And if, you were, if we were at Metropolitan Tabernacle for the song service this morning, Brian would have no role. I would stand up. I would announce to you the song. I would start singing. You would join in. And we would sing the songs. That's the music service. No instruments. No song leader. We just all sing the songs. Those three pillars, right? No instruments. No human composition. No melody. That was the music of our Puritan forefathers. That was the music of the pilgrims at Plymouth Rock, and that was the music of the Puritans in Massachusetts Bay Colony. <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago, when I talked about the antinomian controversy, I mentioned the man John Cotton. John Cotton was a pastor who was a tremendous influence in England, who came to the American colonies. He had been the pastor of Anne Hutchinson. His move to the new, to, from England to the colonies is what precipitated the Hutchinson's move from New England to, to the colony, from England to the colonies. They followed their, <clears throat> their pastors, so to speak. This is what he said. Singing with instruments is typical. In other words, to use a musical instrument is to use a type and is a ceremonial worship based in the Old Testament and therefore is ceased. So why doesn't the church use a piano or an organ or a guitar? Because they use them in the Old Testament and the Old Testament is typical and the type has been fulfilled and therefore they are done and we do not use them. Cotton Mather, a Puritan who lived 1663 to 1728, one of the, you can't read anything about American Puritan history with coming across the Mathers, and they are tremendously influenced people. people. This is kind of my summary. He wrote in, of course, 17th century language, long and wordy and verbose. But he said, God doesn't command the church to write music, and so he will not hear the songs they write. So that if we say, hey, somebody wrote a song, right? The proper response is, did God tell you to write music? God didn't tell you to write music. Why? God's not going to listen to your music. He didn't, God wrote music. He doesn't need you to write music. And let me give you, right? I'm just going to throw this out there, and if you have any interest in it, you can, you can obtain it for free. The website is called archive.org. And it is a book by Robert Stevenson called Patterns of Protestant Church Music. And you can, you can read the copy right there online for nothing. <clears throat> That's where I got the Cotton Mather <clears throat> reference. Right, so that's the music that comes into the American colonial era. We don't use instruments, we don't sing harmony, and we don't sing songs of human composition. Now we have a revival. Now we have a revival. 
And part of the revival is a whole new wave of music. In a breaking away from those strong reformed influences. So in just a minute, I'm going to ask you to just, we're just going to, we're going to take a very quick survey of some music that we have here in our song. On page 714, which you do not need to turn to, on pages 714 to 719, and I'm just, I'm, I'm going through this, folks. You have the hymnal in front of you, but I'm doing this for the sake of anybody that would be watching or listening who goes, what is he talking about? We use the Rejoice Hymns hymnal. It is produced by Majesty Music. And on page 714 to 719, we have a list of authors. So, so there are a lot of people that have written the music that we use. And I want to just call our attention over the next few minutes to three of those men. The first of them is Isaac Watts. Now, technically, right, and so my little disclaimer here is not all of this music is first grade awakening music, but it all comes about out of that time frame. Isaac Watts actually predates the great awakening. Um, <clears throat> he lived 1674 to 1748. In 1707, which is about 20 years, 15 or 20 years before the actual outbreak of uh, <clears throat> the, the Great Awakening, he published his first hymnal. And again, I just want to point out to you that calling it a hymnal is revolutionary and radical all by itself because the word hymnal indicates that it isn't filled with songs. It is filled with songs. Isaac Watts wrote somewhere in the vicinity of 750 hymns. Isaac Watts, of course, is famous for the fact that he tended to think in poetry. If you're familiar at all with the story of his childhood, he thought in poetry by default. He spoke in poetry to the point that his father disciplined him for his nonstop poetry. If you don't stop speaking in poems, I'm going to whip you, boy. But it was almost a compulsion to him. It was the way that he thought. He wrote a book or a hymnal called the Psalms of David. In which he took the Psalms and then tried to modify them to fit clear New Testament theology. He would not write any of David's imprecatory psalms. He, he wanted to focus on the love of Christ and believe that the church didn't need to sing about revenge and vengeance. And in fact, part of his argument against singing only the psalms was that so many of them emphasized fear rather than love. And I think, by the way, that, that he missed the fact that the Old Testament emphasis upon fear of the Lord is more along the lines of being saved than of crouching hidden in a corner hoping that he doesn't hit you yet again. Watts had his quirks. 
Isaac Watts believed that when you were reading about Michael the Archangel, you're actually reading about Jesus, that Jesus was Michael the Archangel. And John Wesley, one of his contemporaries, after reading all the things that Isaac Watts had written, made the declaration that he was an Arian, that he didn't really believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, whether or not that's true, I guess only eternity will use. But let me ask you now, if you would, just take your songbook, and I'm just going to do this very quickly, right? you know, as fast as I can. My intention this morning is not to analyze the music of Isaac Watts, a task for which I am completely not suited. And of course, we use, again, I'm mentioning this for the sake of anybody who might not be familiar with the church that would ever hear this. We use the Rejoice hymnal, and then we have our own little folder that we have put together of music from other sources, some of which our own charity has has written or written the music for, and others are songs from other songbooks, and others are music that we have bought through uh, the CCLI licensing that are not in our Rejoice. But turn, if you would, first of all, to hymn number 11. This is the first. I just went through, found Isaac Watts' music in there. All right. <clears throat> So number 11 is the first. Just take a quick look at it. I'm not asking you to read the musical notation. Just take a look at it. I'm going to get to this. Some of you may pick up on this. Others of you may not. But there is a commonality to all of Watts' music. That then this commonality is shared by the other two authors that I'm going to mention. It is right there on page number 11. If you, right? <clears throat> I mean, if, you, if, if I pointed it out to you, you would see it clearly. But I'm not going to point it out to you just yet. If you'll go ahead to hymn number 24. Right? These are wonderful, beloved songs to us, aren't they? My, it is not my intention to criticize any music today. Right? Please, right? Sometimes I start talking about music. I'm not always the most flattering about some songs. Right? <clears throat> I have nothing glowing or flowing to say about Days of Elijah. So just, <clears throat> right? just cut to that right now. Get to that chase. Uh, <clears throat> get that out of the way. Isaac Watts did not write it. Neither did Moses. And <clears throat> that's good enough for me. All right, Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past. That's a beautiful song that we love to sing. Psalm 146. Now remember, Isaac Watts wrote about 750 songs. Psalm 146, My Shepherd Will Supply My Need. A great song, great words, not my favorite melody. You notice that it's an early American melody. And if I was a music authority, I would leave it in the early American period. But that's neither here nor there. Not the song, but the melody. Number 199. Joy to the world, <clears throat> joy to the world, <clears throat> we all know that one, we know that one pretty well. Uh, number 250, Jesus shall reign, and you notice for us that it spans two pages, and I'm going to tip my hand a little bit, if you look down to the very bottom of that, you will notice this note, right? Written by, words by Isaac Watts, music by John Hatton. Last stanza setting and choral ending by Shelley Hamilton. 
And I'm not suggesting that we need to preface every song with this, but I just want you to make note of that. All right, we'll, keep, we'll move on. That's number 250, 280. I don't know, I, and I didn't ask. I, Charity, Charity picks all of our, con- or most of our congregational singing, certainly on Sundays, and I don't know if she could have told me how often these songs get sung. I didn't ask, it doesn't matter. Number, number 280, another one that we know very well, Alas and Did My Savior Bleed. Number 292. And 293, <clears throat> two different arrangements of the same song written by Isaac Watts. When I survey the wondrous cross, right, these are songs, right? I mean, you know, we, we could just, we could leave our songbooks close and get through the first verse of almost every one of these songs. 296. At the cross. 436. Four hundred and thirty-six. Come, we that love the Lord. Six hundred and eighteen. When I can read my title clear. When I can read my title clear. Number six hundred and twenty-one. We are marching to Zion. <clears throat> we are marching to Zion. Then number 664. Am I a soldier of the cross? Am I a soldier of the cross? Now one thing I didn't mention, Isaac Watts was an Englishman. And while the Great Awakening was going on in America, 1720, 1770, there was a revival going on in conjunction in England, the evangelical revival in England. And again, Watts predates that a little bit, so I'm not just saying that Watts was influenced by the Great Awakening or the evangelical revival of England and began to write this music. Watts was a little bit ahead of the curve, so to speak, in this musical controversy, he was already arguing against some of those entrenched positions. But we have a lot of music in our songbook. And then there are, I, I wrote it down, but I didn't put it in my list here. There, there are another handful of songs in our little folder that are Isaac Watts songs that we use. So we use a lot of Isaac Watts music. We love Isaac Watts music. It's great music. Man number two is John Newton. And John Newton lived 1725 to 1807. He is clearly in that Great Awakening window or the Evangelical Awakening window. John Newton, of course, is the British slave trader who got saved. He became an Anglican minister. He was a pastor in the Church of England of the Evangelical variety. He, was, he would be very conservative and gospel-oriented, so we're not, I'm not faulting that. He was an ardent abolitionist and a good friend of another important songwriter that I'm really talking about, William Cooper. But again, we have John Newton music in our songbook 
Uh, if you turn back to the very beginning to song number four, is a John Newton tune, or John, not a John Newton tune, that's bad. John Newton poem. Glorious things of thee are spoken. John Newton wrote that. Uh, number 96. <clears throat> And this one is a little interesting because in this one, Newton wrote the music but not the poem. And if you look at the bottom, you'll see that. The words were by Samuel Davies and John Newton wrote the, the musical notation for that. And I don't, I don't know, I don't recall us having ever sung that. I can't say that I'm familiar with the song, but it is a John Newton song and it's in our songbook. Number 130. Perhaps the most famous Christian song that's ever been written, Amazing Grace. Number 252. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds. Again, I'm not familiar with that. You might be familiar with that. I don't know that we sing it or if we have, we've sung it enough to, for it to be familiar. Number 288, we sung. He died for me. He died for me. So Isaac Watts, John Newton, these are two men in our songbooks. We use them a lot. And there is, and it doesn't always show up in our English hymnal, but I'll come to this. There is a common feature to this music, to the music that they wrote. Let me give you then, finally, the third man, and that is Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley lived 1707 to 1788. He is impacted by the evangelical awakening in England and a tremendous influence along with his brother John in the Great Awakening in America. Um, and in fact, if you're unfamiliar with them, they actually date their conversion. They were Anglican ministers. They left England to go to the colony of Georgia to minister to the prisoners there because Georgia was kind of established as a penal colony for wayward British citizens. And they got converted on the boat on the way over. And so, and then of course their um, methodological approach to devotions and Christian life gave them of course the name Methodist, the name of the denomination. So both of these men were Anglican ministers. And you know, they... Their mother was in many ways as famous as they were, Susanna Wesley and her, I think, 17 children uh, that she had. So again, if you would go back to the beginning of your songbook, because there are lots of Wesley music that we use. Number 18. Number 18, O for a Thousand Songs, Tongues to Sing. Number 19, same song, different arrangement, O for a Thousand Tongues. Number 20, again, one that I personally am not familiar with. I'm, we may have sung it, but not enough for me to know. Oh, for a heart to praise my God. Number 43. Number 
Rejoice, the Lord is King. Number 60. Ye servants of God. <clears throat> Number 100. I'm going to move through these very quickly because I'm running out of time and we're John, Charles Wesley wrote a lot of music for us. Love divine, all love's excelling. Number 111. Certainly a church favorite, and can it be? Number 209. <clears throat> Come thou long expected Jesus. Number 227. Hark the herald angels sing. I think we all know that one fairly well. Number 240. Jesus, lover of my soul. Number 323. Christ the Lord is risen today. Number 326. Jesus Christ is risen today. You can see at the bottom there that it, it's a, originally a Latin hymn that was altered by John Wesley, or Charles Wesley, uh, number 326. Um, <clears throat> Uh-oh, typo there. There's somewhere in the 390s, but I don't know which one. We'll pass over it. Number 659. Soldiers of the Cross to Rise. Number 666. Arise, my soul, arise. Number 695. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Sixteen songs that we sing in our songbook, just this songbook, just our hymnal. Now here's the common feature, folks, and, and I would argue that we don't spend a lot of time talking about it, we don't really pay attention to it, but it is significant. All of that music <clears throat> is genuinely a hymn. H-Y-M-N. None of that music was written when it was written with a chorus or a refrain. Now some of them have choruses or refrains. Number 288 John Newton's song has a refrain. But those are later additions. And, and let me just give to you a website, again if you care, called hymnary, hymnary.org. <clears throat> um, somebody has put together this. You can look up just so many hymns and find a whole history. And you can actually look at some of these songs in a much, much older format and, and find them in, you know, because they're just hundreds, folks, hundreds of songbooks that have been produced over the years. Hundreds of songbooks. These songs are true hymns. There, are, there, there were no choruses added to them. There were no refrains. They're just just. Three stanzas, four stanzas, however many stanzas that we have. And we don't think anything about that. And I'm not saying that we should think anything about that other than this. Right? When it, what, at whatever point in time in history we want to talk about Christianity, 
it is going to be influenced by a variety of common kind of features. So these people were 300 years ago writing what was in their day very revolutionary music. They were going against the established churches. They were going against the established doctrines. You're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to write music. And you're not supposed to play a piano to sing to that music or an organ. So, right, to us it is precious and familiar and traditional, but there was a time when it was new and innovative and radical. And folks, here's part of the significance of that, right? The, the first great awakening was 300 years ago. There are very few places to which you can directly trace its legacy. There's some lingering Ivy League colleges, none of whom are known for their stalwart Christianity any longer. But the influence of the First Great Awakening lives on in our songbook. This is music that came out of that era. And it is precious and it continues. And as we will see as we work through folks, there is going to come yet another new wave of innovation that is going to upset the Christian wagon and that is the innovation of refrains and choruses and the addition of music like gospel songs that we have yet to get into. The hymns are all by nature very folks. If you just look at the words, they are, are, they are all very theologically oriented. They are all directed towards Bible verses and Bible truths and God's attributes. And only rarely, in the rarest of expressions, do they talk about personal testimony, personal experience, personal conviction. And when they do that, they do it in a very somber kind of expression. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And 100, 200 years after that, that musical world is going to go through another set of shocks, and we'll eventually get to that. Okay, I'm going to stop this morning. Uh, we will be back at 11 o'clock.